Okay, this is Corinth viewed from our ancient drone. Now it's an artist's conception, and you can see the Temple of Poseidon there, the, the chief god of Corinth, and uh, then get it here. There we go. Okay, this is ruins in Corinth today, the ruins, I believe, of that same temple, the Temple of Poseidon there with those nice Doric uh, columns. And in the background, then the high rocky hill, the Acro Corinth, where the Temple of Aphrodite was located, another of the prominent gods, temples, etc., of Corinth, although far from the only one, they had many there, as is typical in the ancient world. Okay. Now, again, just to review, in these middle chapters of 1 Corinthians, we've been talking about limitations on Christian liberty. Actually, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been talking about uh, limitations on our Christian liberty. And uh, so in chapter 8, we saw that our Christian liberty is limited by our love for others and our sensitivity to the effect our actions may have on them, especially spiritually, primarily spiritually, actually, in, in this context. And then in chapter 9, we saw this uh, limitation may mean that we do not always claim all that we have a right to claim. And as you remember, through most of chapter 9, the Apostle Paul talks about how he, as someone who was in uh, full-time employment or was employed, you know, full-time in spreading the gospel, preaching the gospel uh, to areas where it was not previously known, you know, doing what a uh, missionary would do today, that he had a, I guess we could say, a right to claim um, that to demand that the churches would support him and, and even to support him and a wife. If he had had a wife, it doesn't seem like he did have one, but the other apostles did. And he said, why, well, you know, I could claim uh, support and I could claim support for a wife, but he's not doing that because to do so would be to hinder the cause of Christ, hinder the spread of the gospel and perhaps hurt other believers. And then in chapter 10, which is the chapter we're going to finish up today, so that our Christian liberty is not a license to do evil. Yes, Christian liberty is great and, and there is tremendous liberty in Christ, but it's liberty to do things that please uh, the God whom we love. And it's certainly not just a liberty to just ignore what pleases him at all, quite the contrary. Now, so then in chapter 10, chapter 10 is subdivided into four different sections. So we saw, first of all, in verses 1 to 5, the privileges and yet the judgment of Israel. You remember that, how the people of Israel... Uh, had enjoyed such amazing privileges and blessings, and they had come through the Red Sea. God had done this amazing deliverance for them there in the Red Sea. And then he led them, and he provided for them with manna from heaven, and he gave them water out of a rock more than once. And they didn't do very well. They didn't trust God. They complained. They complained about the manna. They just rebelled, and uh, so they came under judgment. And we know that the majority, great majority, of those who came out of Egypt and went through the Red Sea never saw the land of Canaan. Now, then in the second section, we have these cautions against sinful practices, and the Apostle Paul tells us, don't be like the people of Israel. They are examples to us. Don't do what they did. And warns us against sinful practices, but assures us there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, will with the temptation make a way of escape. You may be able to bear it. 
praise God for that. And then the third section of chapter 10, which is what we covered last week, communion with Christ cannot coexist with partaking in idolatry, verses 14 to 22. And here, it's not just a matter of going to the temple of Poseidon or the temple of Aphrodite and bowing down to a statue or eating meat that had been offered to a statue, although that was the form it took for the Corinthians. But remember, I talked about how idolatry could be anything that we place above God, anything for which we are willing to violate God's rules, God's laws, and anything that we desire or crave more than God and uh, we need to steer clear of those things. We cannot mix the worship of the one true God with trying to please ourselves by the things of this world. And finally, the fourth, cha- uh, the fourth section of chapter 10, which is what we're going to cover today, God wills. All we do should be to the glory of God and without offense to the consciences of others. And it's verses 23 to 33. So I'm going to read them at this time. And uh, going to guys, okay, um, yeah. Sorry about that. Techni- another technical glitch there. All right, so I'm going to read them. They're on two slides. Here we go. All things are lawful, not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. If anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, your own con- I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, I'm seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Okay, let's go through this first five verse now. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Here's this repetition of the all things are lawful. We came across this phrase back in chapter 6. The way he quotes it, it it sounds like this was a saying that the uh, Corinthians were using, probably using not in a good way. And um, one commentator even suggests that this may be a quotation of Paul misapplied by the Corinthians. We don't really know that, but that's a guess. It's just something in the way he's using it here. It's like, hmm, that's interesting. And you could easily imagine this as being something he had said in a, in a different way, in a different context, with a completely different application. And they're taking and casting it back at him. I don't know if you've ever had that done to you, um, where you said something and somebody takes it and they I'll throw it back to you in such a way as not at all the way that you meant. Of course, that could mean that you're a teacher. Right? So there's other things that you could be, and you could have that happen to you. But Paul apparently has it happening to him here. Yes, all things are lawful, but all things are not profitable. They're not useful. They're not practical. They're not expedient for helping others to become holier 
wiser, more like Christ. And in fact, as we find out way at the end of the passage, also that they might be saved. In other words, if they're not in Christ at all, they're not trusting in Christ for their salvation, well, we want to influence them all we can and urge them all we can and help them all we can, that they come to the point of coming to Christ by repentance and faith and being saved from their sin, being forgiven from their sin and freed from its its penalty and its power. And not everything is profitable for doing that or for helping those who are in Christ. Not all things edify. Use that word, or maybe you don't. I don't know. Maybe people of my generation were raised in my church uh, fellowship. Use the word edify. That's not edifying. Um, To edify means to build up. Like an edifice is a building while to build up. So not everything builds up my fellow believers. It doesn't build up their faith or build up their obedience, which follows from genuine faith. You know, genuine faith, obedience naturally follows. And I need to live in a way that will edify my fellow believers, build up their faith, build up their obedience that naturally follows from faith. Well, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Now, there are passages of scripture in the Bible that make it clear that we should do good for others. As we have opportunity to let us do good to all men, says Galatians, Uh, and that, and especially those that are of the household of faith. And that's a reference to uh, helping them with the things that they need. For example, maybe our neighbors uh, here on the street next to us, maybe they're Maybe they're running out of food in these difficult times. They're out of eggs or, or, or they're out of milk or other products that are needed. Maybe, um, yes, other things. And maybe we've hoarded. I mean, we've laid up a good stockpile and we can share with them. That, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about in this context, this is helping our neighbor's spiritual good. So we should seek our neighbor's spiritual good. We shouldn't be just thinking, well, yeah, just, just me and just, just getting on with God myself, although I do, want to, I do want to do that. But how can I help those around me to advance in their Christian walk too? Okay, verses 25 and 26. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Um, it's, I like these new translations. They're much clearer and more direct. And I think people that haven't grown up on the old King James and uh, I think, well, let me put it this way. I think those of us who did grow up on the old King James overestimate our our ability to understand that without having memorized it, learn what it meant already. I say that because I kind of miss the uh, old King James word, whatever, whatsoever sold in the shambles. Shambles was an old English word for meat market. It, we say shambles today, it sounds like a mess, um, but uh, it was the meat market, which I probably was a mess. But anyway, well, whatever sold in the meat market that at, eat, asking no questions for conscience sake. Meat is meat, and anything that may have happened to it spiritually will not affect us if we are not eating in the context of an act of worship to an idol. Now, things could have happened to it physically. Uh, you know, it could have been left in too warm of an environment for too long a time, et cetera, et cetera, and it may be full of bacteria, and we could get a good old-fashioned case of E. coli from it or salmonella or something, and you could die of it or something, but really, really sick at least. Well, we don't want that to happen, but that's a physical consequence. If we, uh, if the meat in the meat market gave us E. coli and we died from it, 
we would go right on to have a sky blue victory, uh, regardless of what, in a spiritual sense, might have happened to that meat, like it being offered to idols. And that back when we were talking about Chapter 8, I used the example of a modern grocery store. What if uh, there was some crazy person in the back room at HEB or Kroger or wherever you do grocery shopping, Albertsons, whatever, and he was uh, offering every package of meat to an idol or maybe at the slaughterhouse where they kill those cattle. They're offering every single beast to an idol before they kill that cow or pig or horse or whatever it is they were eating. I hope it's not a horse, but anyway, um, nonetheless, uh, that wouldn't affect us. If someone was was doing that and it turned out that every, you know, if it came out and uh, the news station, their star telegram ran a, a, a big expose. I don't think this is going to happen. They like to run different kinds of exposés over the star telegram. But if they did run an expose that, hey, you know, there's been a, a pagan heathen in the back room at HEB. He's been offering every, every package of meat to an idol. It wouldn't affect us spiritually. That wouldn't make any difference. It's, it is meat. And meat, like everything else in the physical universe, belongs to God. It's God's meat. Uh, it quotes there, actually quotes Psalm 24 and verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And uh, That was a Jewish blessing at mealtimes. We like to put it in songs and sing to the Lord, uh, all the earth is yours and all within each harvest is your own. Or uh, years ago, we used to sing, this is my father's world. And uh, or we, we sing, uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, the sun and stars that shine. Well, yes, he does. Owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills, too. And uh, so it's all his. It was his, It's his beef, his pork, his whatever else it is. And so uh, it doesn't belong to that idol. That idol doesn't exist. It reminds us that everything we enjoy is a gift from God. And uh, that's good. You know, gratitude enhances our enjoyment of the things we have. Uh, when we are grateful for our health, we enjoy it more. You know, I, I might sit here and think, I'm, I'm really glad that my left foot doesn't hurt. You might say, well, I didn't know your left foot. Well, it has from time to time uh, caused me some pain, and it's not. And that's a gift from God. He gave that health, and I'm thankful for that. And uh, whatever else isn't hurting on me that probably in 10 or 20 years or maybe less will be hurting, well, I'm thankful that it's not now. It's a gift from God. I'm thankful for it. You know, I, to the best of my knowledge, I don't have uh, COVID-19, and I'm thankful for that. Yeah, um, that I don't have it yet, and, and who knows? What the future holds, but everything we have is a gift from God, and of course, our food, and it's all a gift from God. So we partake of it with thanksgiving. Okay, verses 27 and 28. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, This meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Okay, so if anyone invites you to a meal in a private home, not in an idol temple, you can go to, you know, someone says, hey, you want to come over for dinner at my house? And it's an unbeliever. You can do that. You're allowed to go to an unbeliever's house to dinner. And um, not to an idol temple, though. That's, that's a different story. We dealt with that in the previous week's lesson. 
that would be an act of worship to that idol. So we don't do that. But if they just invite you to dinner at their home, you can go and eat what is set before you. And that's a good thing uh, at all times for us to learn to eat what is set before you. Oh, my, it's been 11 years ago now, almost 11 years. I was uh, on a short-term missions trip to the Ukraine, the Crimean Peninsula. And uh, and I was very cognizant of the fact that I needed to eat what was set before me. But when, you know, when I was dining in a, in a national's home, you know, a Ukrainian's home and uh, not not be picky about the food. And, and the bad thing was, unbeknownst to me, I had brought with me uh, in my system a virus that I had picked up in uh, Texas and brought with me. And I was suffering from an intestinal virus while I was there. And uh, I've had worse intestinal viruses, but I haven't had one at the worst time. That was difficult. And um, I was not always able to clean up my plate. Like my parents taught me to do, but uh, at the Lord's help, I, I sure didn't complain about any food. I, I did my best. It's good to eat what's set before you, unless, unless someone reveals that the meat has been offered to idols. Mm, okay. Now, in that case, that, that changes the whole equation here. Now, this person might be a believer or an unbeliever. Might be a believer. Maybe you and a fellow believer or a couple of fellow believers are over there. A fellow believer might say to you, oh, don't eat this. It's been offered to an idol. Okay. So he is a believer that, say, of a, of a weaker conscience. He, he's concerned that you might suffer spiritual harm and he might suffer spiritual harm if you eat this because even though nobody told you it was offered to an idol, there's nothing on it that says it's offered to an idol. It, it looks like a piece of meat. It is a piece of meat. But he maybe he knows, hey, you know, the so-and-so family, they're always offering their meat to idols. I'll bet they did. So we better not eat their meat because he feels it would be an act of worship to an idol. So if he tells you that, then that changes it. You don't eat that meat. Or if it's an unbeliever that tells you that, why would we care about protecting a, an, an unbeliever's conscience? Well, this person would apparently believe that you are partaking of the meat, or you're partaking of it would be an act of worship to the idol. And so you shouldn't do it because the unbeliever would believe that you were doing so as an act of worship to the idol. And uh, he might be watching you just to see if you do that. The world watches us Christians to see if we will be faithful to what we've said God has told us to do. That's very important that we hold faithful and hold true to that. We probably don't know just how often they are watching. And if we've told them, you know, I don't do this, uh, now, in this case, of course, if he just saw you eating a piece of meat and he knew that you didn't know that that meat had been offered to an idol, he wouldn't think that you were violating a command of God. But if he knew, he knew because he just told you, you know, this meat's offered to my idol. I just, we picked this up at the Temple of Poseidon, your finest Peloponnesian beef, blessed by Poseidon. Well, now he knows that you know that that was offered to an idol, and that if you continue, it, he would take it, that you would be committing, and indeed, I guess in a way, you would be committing an act of worship to that idol. I mean, you know the idol is nothing, so you're sort of doing it as an act of worship to nothing, except the previous passage that we covered last week told us, in that case, you're really offering it to a devil, a demon. You don't want to do that. So don't do things that... The people around us, whether believers or unbelievers, 
would interpret as an act of worship to an idol, an act of disloyalty to God. In that case, we must abstain in order to protect the other person, person's conscience, an unbeliever's conscience. Well, uh, God may be speaking to him. The Holy Spirit may be convicting him. And if he saw you uh, doing something that he believed was an act of worship to an idol, well, he might feel very relieved. Oh, that's a relief. I was so afraid there might be something to that Christianity, and I might really, there might really be a God before whom I will stand someday, have to give account for my deeds. Well, I guess not. Look at that fine Christian so-and-so. He's going ahead and eating meat that I told him was offered to an idol. There must be nothing to it. It might be he'd be disappointed, too. I, I kind of was starting to think maybe there was something to that Christianity. Somehow, faithfully, the Christians stood by their beliefs. Uh, I guess not. We don't want that to happen. So you abstain to protect the other person's conscience. Okay, verses 29 and 30. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? What he means here, again, these questions are a little bit difficult, and they give the commentators some difficulty, too. But the idea is that it's not about our conscience. It's about the other guy's conscience. It's not that we are supposed to feel conscience-stricken, as though we had been doing something wrong. Here I was, eating this piece of meat, and then the guy said, you know, that was offered to an idol. And it's not that I have to feel like, oh, no. I was sinning by eating that meat. No, you weren't sinning by eating that meat. You weren't. You weren't doing something wrong, and you don't need to feel conscience-stricken. The need not to eat that meat has only just arisen when the person told you about that. You had a perfect right to eat what was said before you. In fact, here in the scripture, you have a command of God to eat what is said before you with gratitude to God for what he had given you. You recognize God as the giver. You eat it with gratitude to him. And, uh, of course, uh, that's not a thing which you be judged, but you're protecting your neighbor's conscience. You would damage his conscience if you allowed him to think that there was no sin in worshiping idols. If you allowed him to think it's perfectly fine and Christians were perfectly willing to worship whatever other gods in addition to this Jesus, who they claim is the only true God. For us in modern America, this might mean refraining from actions that others would interpret as disloyal to God. This is a little more difficult, becomes a little more abstract. Uh, it's very concrete. Uh, if it's an idol, it's meat, it's been offered to an idol. And yet, I think things today can be as concrete as we're willing to let them be to us. By that, I mean they can be as clear and plain and easy calls as we're willing to make. Easy to recognize, if we're willing to recognize, harder to do. We need to refrain from actions that others would interpret it as loyalty to God. You know, if we've been telling our friends, we've been telling the world, that we're not going to do such and such because it's an abomination to God. We're not going to go along with such and such a movement because it's an abomination to God. They shouldn't either because it's an abomination to God. 
And then we come along and say, well, it's really nobody's business. Well, it, we just, that's not important. There's other things that are more important. And we just overlook those things. We just, just push that aside. We'll just subliminate our conscience and our previous convictions about that. That's a big problem. And that is going to damage the consciences of the people around us. The world is watching us, watching our testimony. We said we'd have, we have convictions about things. We said God's word teaches us that such and such is evil. It's an abomination to God. Six things are an abomination. Six things God hates. Seven are an abomination to him. And uh, then we go back on that. It's going to undermine any any work that the Holy Spirit might be doing in that. You know, the story is told uh, as a true story and, and probably is true. Uh, after New Testament times, but not long after, when the church was under persecution within the Roman world, some Christians were killed, martyred, for refusing to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, this, the situation would be here. They, they were persecutors. The evil, actually, the evil ruler who was uh, persecuting him and threatening them with death says, you eat this meat, it's been sacrificed to an idol, and I want you to eat it now. And if you don't, I'm have you killed. And they didn't eat the meat, and they went to their death for that. And you think how easy it would be to rationalize. And, uh, you know, even non-Christians sometimes recognize how easy it is to rationalize things generally. Ben Franklin once said, I think he wrote it in his autobiography, the wonderful thing about being a creature of reason is that one can always find or make a reason for whatever one has a mind to do. Yes, indeed. And uh, how easy it would have been for these believers to rationalize and say, well, you know, if he kills, if well, we, we have to eat this meat. We have to eat this meat because if we don't, <clears throat> he's going to kill us. So we have to eat the meat. And, and if he kills us, well, then there won't be any witness for Christ in this area. The church will be gone and there will be no Christian witness. Here. How are we going to be a witness for God if we're killed for him? By the way, you know the meaning of the word martyr, right? Look it up, maybe. Uh, there's the irony in that, right? I know they didn't really say that, but how easy it would have been. I mean, you can just imagine it. Because it's so easy for us to rationalize things, so we have to fight off those attacks from the devil. When he wants us to rationalize wrongdoing, we can guess how it's, oh, and they could say, well, an idol is nothing. It doesn't mean anything if I eat this. It's, totally, it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. I'm just eating this meat. It's just a piece of meat. It's, just, it's not worship to an idol. No, but the people around you would be taking it as worship to an idol. They would take it as that. And, that, and I mentioned this last time. It's one of the things within the Roman world that really enraged people at the Christians that they would not um, worship the other gods, especially the emperor. They wanted you to worship the emperor by dropping a pinch of incense on his altar. And they wanted you to worship other gods. What's the matter with you, Christians? You're so exclusive. We live with this today. I remember back years and years ago, a good many years ago, back at Southern Illinois University, a fellow student of mine, we were between classes and we were walking from one class to another. I think we happened to have two classes, one after the other, that we were both in that class. And as we walked between classes, he said, yeah, you know, the problem with a lot of Christians is, is they think that Christianity for, is for everybody and, and that, you know, it, it, 
it just everybody should be a Christian. And I'm, well, yeah. And so, well, that's narrow and that's closed-minded and that's judgmental and that's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's um, that's Christianity. There's no other way. Uh, no man cometh to the Father but by the Lord Jesus. And uh, that bothers the world now, and it bothered the world then. And we could easily see temptation coming at us there. And if the world wants us to, in some way, go along, you, you need to be not, um, not so exclusive. You need to be not so self-righteous. They'll call us self-righteous. You're a holier than them. You think you're better than other people. No. No, there's no reason for us to make a comparison between ourselves and other people at all. We are not of them that compare themselves among themselves and justify themselves by themselves, for they that do such are not wise. No reason to compare ourselves to anybody at all. We're thankful that God's grace has abounded the chief of, of sinners. You know, that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners, and I am chief. And uh, it's not that we're better than other people. It's just that we're loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, they could have they could have justified it, too. They could have said, well, he wants us to eat that meat. And we may as well go ahead and do it because, you know, we meet, eat meat every week that we buy down there at the meat market. And, you know, you, you, you take me down to the meat market and you show me a cut of meat down there that hasn't been offered to, them, to an idol. Well, some of them, it looks like they haven't. Maybe the dealer will even tell you they haven't if, he's a, if he knows you're a Christian. But... They probably have. Why not go along with it? Lots of ways to to rationalize. We need to we need to be strong against those temptations. We need to refrain from actions that others would interpret as disloyal to God, <laughs> and that God would interpret as disloyal to God too. Okay, verse thirty-one. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God. This is a favorite verse, and rightly so. And this encompasses everything. Mundane, mundane, the everyday activities of life, and the large and important things, and even religious activities. Yes, even religious things you do to the glory of God. It's not that we act to the glory of God on Sunday morning and live for the devil or ourselves or something like that. The other six days and some. But we're to do everything, whatever you do, to the glory of God, even eating and drinking. Sit down and eat and drink to the glory of God. We do our jobs to the glory of God. Teach history, if that's our job, to the glory of God. Uh, write computer programs to the glory of God. Um, fly airplanes to the glory of God once they let you do it again. Uh, and all this business is over. Uh, this COVID-19 shutdown, uh, fix, fix people's computers and design um, architectural sunshades and louvers and, or take care of a family and uh, fix food for people and clean houses or uh, clean a house or whatever it is that God has called you to do in however mundane to do it to the glory of God. It's kind of a revolutionary idea, really. Within the ancient world, generally, the gods 
for the most part, didn't care how you lived your life in matters that did not directly pertain to them. You weren't robbing their treasury. You weren't forgetting to bring them, their priests, uh, the proper prescribed offerings. You weren't forgetting to say whatever, to, you know, to give them the due obeisance that was specifically owed to them. But for the most part, they didn't care how you lived your life the rest of the time. Jupiter or Saturn or Poseidon didn't particularly care whether you cheated somebody in the marketplace or uh, cheated on your spouse or whatever. That was usually not of any concern to them. And Christianity said it's all important. This also has the effect of ennobling everything in life. It does mean that if you are the janitor and your job is to clean the building at night after everybody goes home, the doors are locked, nobody's there, they don't know, they don't even see you, they don't know if you speak English, Spanish, Swahili, Cantonese, or whatever. Uh, you just go through and you empty all the trash cans and you vacuum the floors and clean the bathrooms, clean the toilets, and what a yucky job, and ugh, and, and all. But we're commanded, if that's your job, do that to the glory of God. Glorify God by that, and God will be glorified by it. Even the most mundane job, even a job that, that doesn't get a lot of recognition. Maybe some of you have seen the film uh, Man for All Seasons, and the uh, all too corruptible Richard Rich says to Sir Thomas More, uh, if I'm a good teacher, if I'm a great teacher, who's going to know it? More wants Rich to be a teacher. And, you know, Rich, well, there's no fame in that. You're just stuck in a classroom. Who even knows if you're even good? Sir Thomas More says, God, your students, your friends, it's not a bad public. Well, right, especially God. He'll know. He'll be glorified. And other people will see it. And they'll notice that you're doing your best at that job, and you're glorifying God in it. So this, this command here is kind of a revolutionary thing. So it means that, that any job, however mundane it may seem, um, wiping little children's noses, cleaning the bathrooms at a summer camp for children, ugh, uh, not a job I think I would enjoy, but if God calls us to do it, he can do it to his glory. He is glorified in it and is pleased to be glorified in it. And it gives an ability to every job that we can do. All that we do should be with the goal of glorifying God. And that's, that is our ultimate goal. It's, it's the Westminster Catechism. It says, uh, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Yes, that's right. They got it right that they don't always, but they did. It's glorifying God is our chief end and goal and purpose in life. Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's our purpose. And Matthew Henry, you know, I quote people sometimes. That does not mean that I agree with them always. You know, last week, I think I quoted John Calvin about something, and as many of you know, I have a number of uh, points of disagreement with Mr. Calvin, but uh, 
at any rate, um, <clears throat> I quote people when they say things right. And uh, so yeah, I thought Matthew Henry got this right, as he, it's not unusual for Matthew Henry to say things that are right. He did say something right this time. This is the great end, that is purpose, of all religion, directs us where expressed rules are wanting. And, you know, there are not rules in the Bible for everything that we could possibly do, for every situation that we could possibly face. And in a way, well, no, that is absolutely, and not just in a way, that is good. That there is, if, if God had wanted us to have a rule for every possible situation, I guess he would have written us a Bible that was, you know, 10 times bigger than the New York phone book, maybe almost as big as the IRS tax code, and uh, no one could know all of it, and it would spell out in detail, be awful, just be awful. He knew that that wasn't what we needed. But the overall goal of glorifying God and subsequent to that, of edifying our fellow believers, helping unbelievers come to faith, these overriding designs guide us so that uh, we know what to do in cases for which there are not explicit rules. It's almost as if he had said the first and great commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here it is, coming through again. The great goal in whatever you do, glorify God. Why? Because you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then, second to that, you love your neighbor as yourself. You try to do the things to help your neighbor to come to faith, or if he's in the faith, to grow in the faith. You know, there are a number of situations that people enter into, and in, in the study of history you find this. Uh, there is a, in my work especially in history with U.S. history, and then especially with 19th century U.S. history, and then very much especially with the era of the Civil War, <clears throat> the lead up to it, the war itself, and then the aftermath. And uh, people, there are people who say, and there's a one prominent uh, Christian writer, writer of church history, who has written about the Civil War, that um, the Civil War, he says, um, completely destroyed a belief in a literal interpretation of Scripture. Really? How is that? Well, he said, it destroyed a liberal interpretation of Scripture because, he says, the Christians in the South, now, at that time, the South was defined as the states in which slavery was legal. So that's from Maryland South, south of the Mason-Dixon line, and from Kentucky South, 15 states in all. He said the states in the South interpreted the Bible literally in interpreting the Bible as allowing slavery. Whereas in the North, where they condemned slavery, they were not interpreting the Bible literally. They were going with uh, some kind of a strained, figurative, interpolated something, extrapolated maybe, uh, interpretation that led them to say slavery is wrong and, and God is against slavery, even though the literal text of the Bible doesn't condemn it. Well, no, that's not true. That is not true. 
And that scholar missed the boat on that one. It is, first of all, it's not true that the Bible literally approves of slavery. The Bible uh, does tell slaves to be obedient to their masters. The Bible does not countenance slave revolt. It uh, just as it countenances us, it, in countenancing us to turn the other cheek. Uh, and if someone who takes your coat, give them your, your coat, give them your cloak also. Um, this uh, is not the Bible approving of stealing and robbery. Hey, the Bible, literal, Bible literally uh, sanctions, uh, blesses robbery. No, of course not, it doesn't. But it just tells us how we as an individual Christian should deal with that situation. The slave should not be uh, rebellious to his master. But he said, if you can get your freedom, use it. And said over there, um, well, actually, we'll get to that uh, later in First Corinthians. No, wait, was that back in chapter seven? Anyway, never mind. Anyway, uh, the point being, uh, just because the Bible does not uh, advocate immediate slave revolt does not, not mean the Bible approves of slavery, the literal text of the Bible. And the fact is that although there are not express rules regarding slavery, that if a person were to follow everything the Bible says about how we should treat our fellow human being, there would be no slavery. There was, in fact, a uh, preacher in Mobile, Alabama, some years before the Civil War. Slavery was very entrenched there in uh, Alabama and as well as other places in the South. And he actually preached that. If we would, you know, the Bible may not say free your slave, but if we would do all the things that the Bible says about how you should treat your servants, how you should treat your fellow human being, slavery would soon vanish away. It was a true word. Uh, that particular preacher had uh, found it necessary to vanish away on the back of a fast horse in front of a would-be lynch mob. Uh, they didn't catch him, but uh, some preachers got caught by lynch mobs in the South, including actually a couple here in Tarrant County uh, in 1860. But anyway, uh, the point is that uh, the Bible does not have to give us an express, explicit, spelled out rule about every situation that could arise, because if it did, it would the Bible would be as thick as the IRS code, and it would be as unusable as that. But it gives us this basic principle so it, we can know what is right to do in situations where we don't have an explicit rule. Okay. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the Church of Christ. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Now, a couple of words here that mean some work. Offense. This is offense in the old sense. Now, this is the New American Standard Translation, so it's not the archaic King James. It's difficult to find a word that stands in one for one with the old meaning of offense. And I think if the translators could have found it, they would have used it. If I could think of one, I'd use it now. But I can't. Maybe stumbling block comes close. Occasion to fall. Uh, Bringing someone in to, to give offense means to set that person up for spiritual failure, to set that person up for spiritual disaster. Don't do that. Don't do it to the Jews. 
They've got their particular beliefs. So be careful that you don't set up the Jews whom you encounter for spiritual failure. What about the Greeks, i.e. the pagans, the heathens, the atheists around us? They've got their particular beliefs. Now, we don't believe as they, they do. We dealt with this elsewhere. But um, back in chapter 9, actually the previous chapter, uh, not that we're without law to God, but we, we are careful not to set them up in what we do and say for a spiritual disaster and also not to our brothers in Christ. So that's what the offense means. Now, in doing what is good for these people spiritually, we often are going to give offense to them in the modern sense. You know, one problem with our modern society is it seems to be, well, it's not like everybody, but it's way too full of people who do nothing day or night but seek some reason to be outraged about something that our people are doing. And this, uh, a lot of, I think, uh, a lot of uh, the political leadership in this country on one side or the other has found it very profitable to use the politics of perpetual outrage. And uh, this comes up in various ways. But anyway, um, so people will be offended. You didn't use the right pronoun. You, uh, whatever. You didn't, you didn't say things just the way they were. You didn't. Um, I once was accused of addressing a letter to a um, former graduate student in the department uh, in a manner calculated to create offense. And I was at a loss. And then I, the only thing I can figure out is I had addressed it to Mrs. So-and-so. And apparently that was something calculated to create offense. She was a married woman. So I called her that. I, didn't, I probably, if I thought about it, I could use Ms. I don't really have a conviction against using that. But uh, my, it's easy how it, easy it is to offend people. And sometimes when we tell the truth and we say, you know what, Jesus is the only way. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. And most of the world around us is going to be offended. You say, do you mean that Jews, if they don't believe in Jesus, are going to go to hell? Yes, that's why we're so eager to share the gospel with them. But do you mean that Muslims are going to go to hell unless they convert and become Christians? Actually, what I mean is everyone is going to convert. Excuse me, everyone is going to go to hell unless they convert and become Christians. Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And that offends the society around us. Well, so we will offend people around us in that way. But we don't want to set them up for spiritual disaster by not being true to God. And this leads me next into the next verse. Just as I, Paul, also please all men in all things. Well, uh, Paul, you please all men. Is that why five times you received 40 stripes, save one, and you were beaten with rods, I forget how many times, uh, stoned once? Uh, I don't think they did that because they were pleased with him. People there at the Lystra, they stoned Paul. And the times that they gave him 40 stripes, save one. And time he was beaten with rods and they threw him in prison there at Philippi. Uh, they were not pleased with him, actually. So when he says he pleases all men, he strives to please all men. 
he does what should please them, what ought to be pleasing to them, what is good for their souls, what? Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many. What, that they might make money? No, not that they might make money, but that they might be saved. And that's our goal. We want to strive to live and do everything we do to the glory of God so that God will be glorified and so that people's attention will be turned to God when they see our good works. And as they see us being faithful to God, when they see us living as though the Bible were really true, because it really is, when they see us living as though Jesus were the only way to God, because he really is, then they may be turned to Christ and they may be saved. Well, thank you for your attention in this difficult medium. Uh, I will close with prayer now, and then I'll turn it back over to Brother Robert. Let's pray. Our Father, once again, we come to you at the end of this uh, lesson. We pray that you would bless your word to the edifying of our hearts and minds, that we might walk worthy of the Lord Jesus, your Son, pleasing you in all things, and uh, striving not to create spiritual stumbling blocks for those around us. We pray that you bless in the service to follow, uh, bless in the sermon, and help us to have ears to hear, and, uh, hearts to receive and to obey all that you would say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Brother Robert, all yours. All right. Thank you, Brother Steve. I appreciate that. And... Um... I'm going to do a few little items here, so let me share the screen and bring it up. There we go.